0: Now, Gavin, a lorry and a truck are two different things. A lorry is a cute little thing with a steering wheel on the wrong side, and a truck is a big hunk of band metal with truck nuts hanging off the bumper. Ass. Yes. The following podcast contains... Only I didn't say fudge. <laughs> and for gosh sake, watch your language. Watch your profanity. Right, I'm sorry. Explicit Language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. And you let a bunch of nerds name your multi billion dollar new spaceship. What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 414, the Admiral. No. It is the Enterprise. Edition of the show where we talk about naming America's very first reusable space truck for a 60s television spaceship, the Jupiter 2. No, i the Enterprise. Stay tuned. What the hell are you thinking? Podcast is brought to you by the Pod Trek Podcast, going boldly where so many have gone before. Are you a Star Trek fan who wants to hear three middle-aged nerdy dudes argue about a fifty-year-old television show and why the new versions of it suck? Are you looking for insightful commentary about why gay people wouldn't exist in the twenty-fourth century because wokeness would be over by then? Are you tired of women having opinions about a science fiction property from your childhood? And you should listen to Pod Trek. Hosts Carl, Jerry, and Steve get together once a week to angrily denounce things they don't like, all the while ostensibly discussing an episode of the original series. Pod Trek boldly goes into racist adjacent rants about casting those people in the modern versions of the show and how good Marina Seardus' boobs looked in the next generation. Pod Trek, yet another podcast by old dudes who use hazy childhood memories to support their horrible views about modernity. Tune in quick because this pod stops after five episodes when Carl, Jerry, and Steve discover that making a podcast is actually hard work. NASA's reusable shuttle orbiter, part of a new, less expensive space transportation system. A spaceship that will put our country in the Earth orbit freight business. This is Orbiter 101 as it rolled out of the hangar in Palmdale, California. It has been named the Enterprise. It has taken four years to go from the orbiter design stage to the nearly completed spacecraft. These were some of the steps along the way. Like many, if not most, ginger-haired portly preteens, I loved science fiction. Really? No way. By the time I was in first grade, I was sci-fi crazy, and in another shocking twist, my very favorite science fiction franchise was Star Trek. Sir, I am shocked. Keep in mind, this was slightly before that other sci-fi franchise debuted and stole the hearts of so many tubby little dweebs in 1977. I was more than just a Star Trek fan. I mean, Space 1999 was pretty badass. groovy is that disco in space and space 1999 was so very british how could i not love it plus the moon just blasted out of earth orbit because our nuclear waste blew up oh fucking awesome but trek trek was my jam most kids wanted to be kirk or spock not me i wanted to be mccoy Damn. i'm your doctor and i'm your friend not because I was into medicine or anything like that. I wanted to be McCoy because he had an accent that sounded slightly like my own, and for a kid with a thick Tennessee accent, that was important. So I watched the show on reruns whenever it was on. I was never a big fan of the animated series, which I always found slightly insulting because it was a kid's show, even though I myself was a kid. Of course, doofy asked me, now that I think of it, the original show had guys in literal rubber suits shuffling around and growling. Alasimov's foundation trilogy, it ain't. To be sure, there were some amazing episodes, beautifully written and active, that explored the finest of science fiction traditions, but the majority of the show was little better than, uh... Always a man in a silver suit battling a monster. As I grew older, I moved away from sci-fi and into swords and sorcery, mostly because I started playing Dungeons & Dragons, but partly because all the sci-fi that was available post-Star Wars was Star Wars. I didn't hate Star Wars, but I figured, why should I see wizards in space fight with laser swords when I could read and play wizards in a fantasy realm fighting dragons and stealing their shit? Also, the princesses we rescued in D&D would put out if if you had the right dungeon master. Gross, gross, gross! Which brings me to this week's topic. It's not promiscuous, princesses, but how fucking weird this country was in the 1970s. Recurring theme here. The recurring theme is that we got a lot of cranks. Specifically... Only in America and only in the 70s could a bunch of nerds who love a long-canceled television show about spaceships and aliens convince the actual president of the United States of America to name a brand new, incredibly expensive, state-of-the-art space vehicle for the ship on the long-canceled television show. Like, people fucking love Firefly, but ain't nobody gonna get even so much as a SpaceX rocket named after Serenity. Take my love, take my land, take me where I can stay. I don't care, I'm still free, you can't take the sky from me. But in, the 19, but in 1976, they did exactly that! Before we tell that story, we have to talk about the shuttle program itself. Do we really have to do uh, this? Yes, because this is also a history show, and telling how something happens is just as important as telling that it happened. Plus, I need to fill 30 minutes of content, and if I just say nerd's name to the, the Enterprise, the show is over in about 20 seconds. Where was I? Oh, yes. As I mentioned last week, after the USA had gone to the moon and discovered that it contained neither indigenous people to oppress nor large petroleum reserves, we decided we were done with that. I am totally over it. But it was increasingly clear to the military-industrial complex that space was going to be, A, a massive moneymaker for the defense industry, and B, we couldn't just leave it to the, you know, to the Soviet Union. We were gonna need some kind of space program, so over the strenuous objections of NASA's favorite Nazi, Werner von Braun. The Nazi just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. No, I assure you, he actually was a Nazi, but he also did rub people the wrong way, particularly if they were Jewish. America went back to the drawing board and came up with a new vision for space exploration. What they came away with was what was described in episode number 279 as a flying Ford F-150. Of all the pickups in the market today, one carries them all, it's the leader ford with the best gas mileage ratings of all the american-built pickups that can carry a big 2500 pound payload with more six-cylinder torque than any of them do and as for the imports ford's got them in roominess as well as payload not kidding this was actually how it was to pitch to congress and the american people a space truck what would this space truck do exactly well, a big part of the initial idea was building a bigger, new, better, more permanent space station that replace the soon-to-crash Skylab. NASA, along with the European Space Agency, were deep into plans to build what would eventually be the International Space Station. Another selling point was a reusable vehicle could reduce the cost of putting satellites into the orbit to the point where direct lift rockets would be discarded as too expensive. There was even talk that shuttles would be the key to assembling the spaceship for a manned mission to Mars. We're going to Mars. Uh-huh. Oh, good Good Yeah, no one tell Elon about that. The shuttle program's plan was a wildly optimistic view of the future of spaceflight. Very much a product of post-Apollo euphoria where NASA thought the money spigot would never be turned off. Visions of space stations, moon bases, manned missions to Mars were seriously discussed as though they were things that were actually going to happen and soon. If you think I'm joking, this is taken directly from a NASA briefing paper written in 1969. Quote, The nation now has the demonstrated capability to move on to new goals and new achievements in space in all of the areas pioneered during the decade of the 60s. In each area of space exploration, what seemed impossible yesterday has become today's accomplishment. Our horizons and our competence have expanded to the point where we could consider unmanned missions to any region of our solar system, manned bases in Earth orbit, lunar orbit, or on the surface of the moon, manned missions to Mars, space transportation systems that carry their payloads into orbit and then return and land as a conventional jet aircraft, reusable nuclear-powered rockets for space operations, remotely controlled roving science vehicles on the moon or on Mars, and application of space capability to a variety of services to the benefit of man here on Earth. Unquote. What were we getting ready to do in the 70s, according to the thinkers at NASA? To boldly go where no one has gone before. Meanwhile, in reality, NASA was way up at 11, and Congress was like, and You do it about three, okay? There were a lot of things that were going on that was going to have to make NASA cut their funds. The world economy being a shambles, massive unemployment and double-digit inflation thing was kind of a factor. And in fairness, it wasn't all Congress because, you see, the Apollo program was Jack Kennedy's thing. And Dick Nixon fucking hated JFK. I'm not saying that Dick was the second shooter on the grassy knoll, but I am saying that Dick Nixon wished he were the second shooter on the grassy knoll. Allegedly. And while we're at it, Dick didn't think much better of LBJ, who had kept the program alive while juggling and expanding war in Southeast Asia and the greatest expansion of the social safety net since the New Deal, and really could have used the cash to get him out of that we spent going to go into the moon to get him out of a couple of jams here at home. The upshot is that Nixon. For all he enjoyed the dopamine hit of good fields, that being the president that landed safe Americans on the moon and safely brought them back, he didn't really give Nary a damn about spending more money on the agency than was absolutely necessary to make it look like he wasn't actively trying to kill NASA, which he probably kind of was. So when NASA came calling for the funds they needed to make this boldly go vision happen, the response from the government was, "You know what? I'll tell you what. I'll give you a thousand bucks. It's the best I can do. Period." The upshot being is that NASA had to go back to the office and begin scaling down their ambitions for the shuttle program and everything else. Gone were the moon bases, the Mars missions, they got that spare part space station, and a little bit of money for their flying F-150. Wikipedia explains the vision and then the reality. Quote, the early development of the space shuttle, NASA had estimated that the program would cost $7.45 billion. That's about $54 billion in 2023 dollars in development and non-recurring costs. And $9.3 million or $68 million in 2023 dollars per, per flight. Early estimates for the cost of deliver, delivery of payload to low Earth orbit were as low as $118 per pound of payload. at was at 50 launches per year. A more realistic rejection of 12 flights per year with a 15-year service life combined with the initial development cost would have resulted in the total cost projection for the program of a roughly $73 billion in 2023 money. And the actual retail price of your showcase is... Of the 30-year service life of the shuttle program through 2011, adjusted for inflation, was $265 billion in 2023 $20, dollars unquote it's a rounding error the whole goal of the shuttle program was to make orbital lift practical common and affordable using reusable vehicles and cha- charging private companies less than what they would have to pay to launch their satellites on a single-use rocket nasa would also get a revenue stream for the defense department putting up military satellites which they did despite just facing intense criticism for militarizing space something that we swore that nasa wouldn't do but totally did anyway. The shadow would have been instrumental in getting the farcical Strategic Defense Initiative into place had that program not been an age-related delusion brought on by the early Simpsons of dementia in you-know-who. Say his name! I, I don't want to say his name. I'm tired of saying his name. Say it! Say it! <sighs> Ronald Reagan. Yeah! He said it! He said it! Ironically, had Star Wars been a real thing, it would have reinvigorated the shuttle program, funneled money for more orbitals and increased missions, but, you know, that was never going to happen. And then, something did happen. The Challenger. By the big boom. And that slowed the program down to a crawl for years, and when it finally came back, it was scaled back even further and literally had become the boring space truck hauling stuff into orbit and coming back that they talked about in the first place, but no one thought it would be that boring. It was not a failure by any measure. Well, okay, technically there were two measures in which was an absolute failure, but for the most part, the 135 launches hit their mission goals. They fixed the Hubble, helped build the International Space Station. It wasn't the grand vision NASA had in mind, but, but those problems were all in the future. Because in the beginning, America's loved their space truck. Maybe it's because everybody was driving those conversion vans with the shag carpet and the eight tracks in it, I don't know. NASA wrote about how much people loved the shuttle in one of their numerous briefing papers that I discovered on the internet. Quote, since its inception, NASA has captivated the dreamers and adventures and its Apollo program captured the public's imagination and interest. Similarly, the space shuttle broadly impacted art, popular music, film, television, and photos as well as consumer cultures. Over the years, the shuttle became a cultural icon, a symbol of America's technological prowess that inspired many people inside and outside the agency. The shuttle, the crews, and the missions inspired many musicians who composed songs about the shuttle and its flights. Canadian rockers Rush, who were present at the first launch, wrote their 1982 song countdown cool song not a rush classic but it's cool about the event and dedicated the songs to astronauts young and crippen and all the people of nasa for their inspiration and cooperation unquote the shuttle wasn't like the early space program the province of steely-eyed missile men with the right stuff is a regular joe spaceship one that you could see yourself going in space someday indeed that too was a selling point that someday normal people would ride it into orbit the way you took a flight from new york to london of course when we did send an actual person into orbit it it, it didn't turn out so well maybe you should skip this one see episode 279 for our thoughts on the whole teacher in space thing for now let's just say that the allure of regular folks going up in the shuttle faded rather quickly but again That was in the future. In the 1970s, we were in love. NASA was building a test vehicle first to make sure this whole idea of landing actually landed. This vehicle, the OV-101, OV meaning orbital vehicle, was a full-size prototype lacking only the engines needed to fly in space and a few other systems needed only for orbital flight and re-entry, like the heat shields, and it had one very simple mission. It was going to be loaded onto the back of a 747, flown up to around 40,000 feet or so, then it would detach from the 747 and fly back to Earth with no power or no engines of any kind. Just like that? Yeah. Just like that. Say what you will about the test pilots, but it took big steel balls to fly, fly 150,000 pound unpowered box truck on wings off the back of a whole other airplane and land it without so much as a window fan to push it from behind. I personally- So generous, but I'm gonna take a pass. As the first shuttle was put together, the news gave it much hoopla, covering the construction and the first flight. There was just one thing left to do. first thing you need is a name. NASA has and had and has a policy for naming spacecraft. Quote, each project name will be a simple euphonic word that will not duplicate or be confused with other NASA or non-NASA project titles. When possible, if appropriate, names will be chosen to reflect NASA's mission. Project names will be serialized when appropriate, thus limiting the number of different names in use at any one time. However, serialization will be used only after successful flight or accomplishment has been achieved," unquote. But that was just for program names. The individual craft were named by their crews. They were more like call signs than actual, you know, ship names or designations. Starting with Apollo, these names were formalized so that each craft on each mission had their own name, like Apollo 11's Columbia for the command module and Eagle for the lander, or Apollo 13's Odyssey for the command module and Aquarius for the landers. For the shuttle program, the naming convention was going to be historical naval ships or ships of exploration. Columbia, OV-102, was named after a sailing frigate launched in 18. It was one of the first Navy ships to circumnavigate the globe. Challenger OV-099 was named after a Navy ship, which from 1872 to 1876 made prolonged exploration of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. You know, that sort of thing. So it was decided by NASA that the OV-101 would bear the name Constitution for the Bicentennial, the year which would debut, 1976, and after the USS Constitution, Old Ironsides, the oldest ship in the Navy. But that didn't last long when the nerds got involved. The specific nerds that got involved were fans of a little show that's called Star Trek. I'm sure you've never heard of it. Space, a final frontier. And pod friends, those nerds began writing letters, letters to NASA, letters to the newspapers, letters to President Gerald Ford, letters by the tens of thousands, all with the same politely worded suggestion as to the name of the new shuttle. Trekkies, as they call themselves, had experience in this kind of thing. It was after all a massive letter-writing campaign to CBS that shaved the, saved the show from cancellation as a second season and bought it its third, making it eligible for syndication. And one person organized both efforts, Betty Joanne Trimble, or as she is most commonly known, B. Joe Trimble. Quoting now from Star Trekdom.com quote, B Joe Trimble, the most famous and influential fan in Trek history, launched a new letter writing campaign in the spirit of her earlier save Star Trek campaigns during the last years of the show. She used mailing lists from conventions and advertisement and fanzines and newspapers and pleaded with fans to send letters and petitions asking that the name be changed to Enterprise. Could there be, she asked, any more fitting tribute to the space program? This new epoch of human history would be symbolized by Gene Roddenberry's optimistic vision of a future international cooperation and social harmony. Wasn't that better than a nationalistic or cold warrior's designation? Soon, the White House was flooded with thousands of letters. It's not clear how many were sent, but most reliable sources estimate between 10 and 40,000, unquote. NASA was not originally enthused by this idea, but Gerald Ford, he kind of liked it. So when he spoke with James Fletcher, the head of NASA, he told him, you know, I'm a little partial to the name Enterprise. Even the White House staff was brought on board as quoted in a letter from the time published on Gizmodo, quote, NASA has not announced a name as of yet for the shuttle and they are holding this announcement until your meeting with Fletcher. Dr. Fletcher is not averse to naming the shuttle Enterprise, and I suggest that you ask that it be named so for the following reasons. NASA has received hundreds of thousands of letters from space-oriented Star Trek group asking that the name Enterprise be given to the craft. This group comprises millions of individuals who are deeply interested in our space program. The name Enterprise is tied to with the system on which the nation's economic structure is built. The use of the name would provide a substantial human interest appeal to the rollout of ceremonies scheduled for this month in California, where the aeronautical industry is of vital importance, unquote. Another wrote, quote, it would be personally gratifying to several million followers of the television show star trek one of the most dedicated constituencies in the country moreover the name enterprise is a hallowed navy tradition an enterprise was in action against the barbary pilots, pirates in 1803 during world war ii an enterprise served with the wasp and the hornet in the carrier fleet in the pacific and the navy's current enterprise is the world's first nuclear carrier unquote excuse me sir can you direct me to the naval base in alameda It's where they keep the nuclear vessels. And so it was decided that the OV-101 would bear the name Enterprise. Though officially, it was a reference to the entire naval tradition and the horse Historical Ship naming conventions. But the nerds knew that they had won, and so did America. More from StarTrekDumb.com, quote, While the Trekkers rejoiced at the news, many journalists and NASA critics denounced the decision, depicting the name change as a press agent's coup or an obvious NASA publicity stunt. However, others applauded the decision. The New York Times, for example, remarked, a tribute to all forms of imaginative entertainment that have spurred interest in space and science in this past century is long overdue. It then asked NASA to to, to consider naming the next shuttle, the Jules Verne, unquote. Once NASA was on board with the name, They went full nerd themselves. Let's be honest, NASA's always been full of nerds, and a lot of those nerds love Star Trek. From NASA's official history of the day, the shuttle rolled out, quote, when the vehicle made its public debut at the Rockwell Palmdale, California facility on September 17, 1976, it bore the name Enterprise. More than 600 invited guests and 185 media representatives attended the ceremony. John F. Yardley, NASA Associate Administrator for the Office of Space Flight, opened the event and served as Master of Ceremonies. In his remark, NASA Administrator Fletcher called the rollout a very proud moment for the agency, adding that the new reusable space transportation system will benefit this nation and all the nations of the world. He then directed that the Enterprise begin the rollout. As the Enterprise emerged from the hangar, the Air Force Band, the Golden West, from March Air Force Base in Riverside, California, played Alexander Courage's Star Trek musical score. Several Star Trek cast members, as well as the show's creator, Gene Roddenberry, were on hand to witness the historic event, as were the four astronauts who were scheduled to conduct the approach and landing tests. Unquote. Is the orbiter ready to be rolled out? Yes, sir. Dr. Fletcher, the orbiter is ready. Would you now roll out Orbiter 101, now christened the Enterprise Enterprise? Along with Gene Roddenberry, as I said, were DeForest Kelly. Dr. Leonard McCoy. And you? George Takei. Zulu here, Captain. James Doohan. Montgomery Scott, Chief Engineer. Call me Scotty. Nichelle Nichols. Lieutenant Leonard Nimoy. I am Spock. And Walter Koenig. Chekhov. Pavel. All of them were there on the tarmac as that big white bird wheeled out. Where is Captain Kirk? Pod friends, I looked for an explanation on the notable absence of one William Shatner from this auspicious occasion. I guess it's possible that he was busy filming one of his brief appearances on a TV miniseries called Testimony of Two Men, or maybe, maybe it was his role as Dr. Robert Rock Hansen on the movie, Kingdom of the Spiders. What is it? What the hell's wrong? William Shatner in the classic web of terror. Kingdom of the Spiders. Why would spiders suddenly turn aggressive? This right here is scientific phenomenon. One minute they weren't there, and the next minute they were everywhere. How ah, do we get rid of them? There's not just a few spiders out there. There's millions of them. And your town is right in their path. Therefore, was far, far too busy to show up at the Greatest of Oz to the show and eventually the movie franchise that would eventually be pretty much his entire career. But, you know, if I had to guess, the real reason that the Shat wasn't there is because he's kind of a dick, right? Right. And no one else wanted him there. It is gloriously absurd that this low rated 60s TV show inspired the United States government to name an extremely expensive piece of technology after the ship on that show. It is wild beyond conception that a bunch of dweebs could band together in such numbers that they could sway the President of the United States to do something so objectively silly as name a space shuttle after an imaginary spaceship. But, pod friends, that's the power of Star Trek, which in its original version was sometimes a very good show that addressed the pressing issues of the day in a way that only science fiction can get away with, but for the most part of its run was schlock and cheese, cheaply done with mediocre acting and mediocre writing. Keep in mind, all of this happened before the movies came along, so all there were were three seasons of varying quality of the original series and two seasons of a kid's cartoon. And in many ways... It was the campaign to name the shuttle that convinced Paramount that there was enough there there to reboot the show in the movies, well that and the success of Star Wars, but it says a lot about the show that it roused such passions in his fans that it touched enough souls to make them act in concert to get the dream and vision of Gene Roddenberry honored in a way that Emmy awards or the millions of dollars that he made never could. I'd saying Gene didn't like the money, but the people who loved his creation probably didn't hurt either, and Gene had a bit of an ego. It's not bad for a guy who started out with a show with William Shatner fighting a guy in a rubber lizard suit. The Enterprise, the fake one on TV, was a dream made by Gene Roddenberry, but in a strange way, it also belongs to us. The fans who flew her or flew on her in our dreams... The Shuttle Enterprise went on to make 5 test flights from the back of that 747 each time, performing flawlessly. It was used in various other testing roles as the program advanced, such as mating to launch rockets. And the original plan was to refit the Enterprise with all the things that she needed to go into space and have her join the fleet, but it turned out to be cheaper to build shuttles from scratch than to retrofit her. And after the Challenger disaster, NASA considered again using the Enterprise as a replacement, but again It was still cheaper to build a new one from the spare parts than to refit her. And after the Columbia disaster, the Enterprise was used to test how impacts from debris on the heat shield would damage them. But for the most part, her home for most of the time of the shuttle program was the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. as a static display. And then when the program shut down, the Enterprise was loaded on a 747 for the final flight of her life to her current home, right here in my hometown of New York City, where I finally saw her fly with my own eyes as a middle-aged man as she circled around for her landing at JFK and eventual barge trip to the intrepid Air and Space Museum. Did I jump up and down and squeal like a little kid as that 747 made a long, slow orbit going down the Hudson River and then just over my apartment building on her final approach? You fucking bet your ass I did. I took fucking great photographs, and for those few minutes... I was a little kid again, dreaming of all the possibilities of life in space. And for those final minutes as Enterprise made her final flight over the city of my dreams, she was, once again, a ship of dreams. Just like she was in 1976 here on Earth. and Just like her namesake still is out in the stars today. That is it for the show this week. It's not really a two-parter. I had this one on the books and then the Skylab anniversary came along, and so I bumped the Enterprise back and made them, I guess, booking shows. I know I came across like I was nerd bashing a bit on this week, but I wasn't. I would have been writing letters too back in nineteen seventy five, but my pinship would have been terrible and my first grade spelling worse. Speaking of bad and worse, re- 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 review this show so others can find it and take a listen and see. How fast it can go from bad to worse in just 30 minutes. If you want to kick us a buck so I can afford some more Dr. McCoy action figures, I'm not saying I have any. Okay, I have one. Hit us up at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise, he'll be forced to fire a full spread of photon torpedoes on the show, and I'm frankly, I'm not sure our shields will hold up to that. And so for me, Captain Dave... Star Trekking across the universe, So, my number one producer. Please, don't, don't make me say this line. Please. God, they're Klingons on the starboard bow. Gavin and all the fictional Starfleet Academy cadets on this show, we want to say there are Klingons on the starboard bow, so scrape them off, Jim, and we'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking? Stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at theHell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as WhatTheHellPodcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow.